read. Revelation chapter 6 is a long chapter. There are six seals of the scroll that are opened. I trust we'll be able to go through this entire chapter tonight. We're not doing anything tomorrow anyway, right? It's Memorial Day. The things that take place in chapters 4 through 21 are still in the future. We've talked about the outline of the book of Revelation found in chapter 1 and verse 19, and chapter 1 records the things which John had already seen. Chapters 2 and 3 tell us about the things that are, the message to the seven churches. And in chapters 4 through 21, we're told about the things which shall be hereafter. In fact, the first verse in chapter 4 ends that way, come up hither and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. And so those who hold the preterist view, I don't know what they do with that verse. That is the idea that all these things in the book of Revelation have already happened. They're not, they're not anything, events that will be future. Um, so they, they try to explain the events that are in this chapter as things that have taken place already in history. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, it says, All attempts to find fulfillment of the seals in history have failed to yield any uniform interpretation with no two commentators agreeing. Reminds me of a a room full of uh, 12 Baptists where you have 17 opinions. They don't agree. So it's unlikely that the interpretation of these things already took place. If nobody can come to agreement, even among the school of the preterists, they can't even agree on uh, what's being described here, Um, then I think that's a good strong argument that these things are yet future. Because there are other passages in Scripture about the rapture of the church and the return of Christ, the question naturally comes up, where do we see the rapture in the book of Revelation? Well, let's look at a few of those other references, and uh, I think it will help us uh, to take a a little bit of a a section right before we get into chapter 6 to settle this in our minds of where that rapture took place in Revelation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 16 and 17, we have the key passage on the rapture of the church. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that word caught up is the Latin word rapere, where we get our English word rapture. And the Greek word is harpazo, or har- yeah, harpazo. And uh, it's used in other places. It's used when Paul was taken by force uh, in the uproar at Jerusalem. The Roman soldiers came in and they took him up to the the fortress of Antonio, which is just outside the the gates of the temple. And uh, it says they took him by force. And so the rapture is just that. It's a taking by force. There will be no escaping it. The unbeliever won't be be able to include himself in that rapture. It's too late. No believer will be excluded. The strength of God will catch us away. Uh, Matthew 13, 19, it's used in the parable of the soils where the bird comes and snatches or catches away the seed that has been planted in the soil. And so the rapture will be, if you've ever watched a bird pick up seeds, it's very quick. Uh, it'll take place quickly, according to Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Will take place in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We always used to laugh about that before cell phones. It is the time when the light turns from red to green and the person behind you honks their horn. But now with cell phones, it takes everybody forever and you go through a couple lights. It'll come quickly, twinkling of an eye. There'll be no time to be saved then. People that say, well, I'll get saved later. 
It may be too late. You need to be ready now. Acts 8.39 also uses the word caught away, describing the actual removal of someone from the earth. When they were come out of the water, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip, the, the spirit, it says, of the Lord caught away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And so there's the actual snatching away. That, I think, is the best description of what the rapture is. When will it take place? I always uh, give reasons of how many reasons there are for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I think Walbert has 150. I used to have four. I've, I've upped it to seven tonight. But number one, the, event, the order of the events in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First, uh, chapter 4 describes the rapture. We just read that. Chapter 5 talks about the day of the Lord. When the Old Testament prophets wrote about the day of the Lord, they included it in the day of judgment, and they also included a day of blessing. It was what we read about in Revelation 6 through 19. There are signs, secondly, there are signs for the return, but there are no signs for the rapture. It's imminent. The rapture will be sudden. Another reason that I believe in the pre-trib rapture, Paul expected the Lord's return in his lifetime. If you back up a few verses in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, he says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. We, Paul included himself in that. He expected to be caught up. It could happen in his lifetime. One author, Paul Benware, says another reason. When the church is removed from the earth, believers will meet Christ in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which is one of the facts that distinguished the rapture from the second coming of Christ. Second coming, he comes to earth. We're not caught up into the air. Number five, since the church isn't mentioned in the Chapters 4 through 19 of the book of Revelation, the rapture must have taken place before those events. The seven years of tribulation, the design of it is for God to pour out his wrath on the earth. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God hath not appointed us unto, us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We have come to Christ for salvation. He took all the wrath of God that there was on our sins. There's no more wrath to be poured out on you. And so we will not go through the tribulation, the time of God's wrath. Tribulation is also designed to bring Israel back to the Messiah. I'm going to take just a, a moment to, to share a, a, a slide tonight. Uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel is a difficult passage to, to go through, and so I thought it would help if we... If you squint your eyes, you can see some of this um, on the 70 weeks of Daniel. The word for week in Hebrew is simply seven. And so the, we, we can look at these 77s of Daniel, 70 weeks, 77s of Daniel, 70 weeks of years, 490 years, the time frame for this prophecy. We start with the decree of Cyrus. Uh, that's uh, Artaxerxes. He gave permission for Nehemiah to return to rebuild Jerusalem. We know the date in, historically, 445 B.C. And so that's the first date on our timeline here. Daniel 9.2 reads this way. And you might want to turn to Daniel 9.24 and follow along because you won't be able to see it once the verses come up on this slide. They're even smaller than the words that are here. Daniel 9.2 in that chapter 
In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So these are the 77s, the 70 years of Daniel, the prophecy. Now Daniel 9, in verse 24 through 27, while Daniel is praying, Gabriel appeared to him. And he said in verse 22, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. So Gabriel is going to explain it to Daniel. And we're going to read this explanation and it'll be uh, also explained to us. So verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. I see this is trying to, to reboot here. There we are. Okay, I won't touch anything. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now we come to verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment, we already talked about that, the decree of Cyrus, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. So we have Jerusalem rebuilt, uh, and, and the, the, the time is given here in, in the text in verse 25, shall be seven weeks, 49 years, 77, uh, or seven weeks, seven sevens from the decree of Cyrus to the time Jerusalem is rebuilt. So we have the decree of Cyrus, Jerusalem rebuilt, seven weeks, 49 years, from the decree to rebuild until Jerusalem is rebuilt. And three score and two weeks, that's 62 weeks, the street, of, uh, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And so we have uh, now verse 26, and three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off at 62 years from Jerusalem being rebuilt until the Messiah is cut off, and he's done that on the cross of Calvary, he's crucified, but not for himself. So that makes a total of 69 weeks. Then comes the church age, and we wait for the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It has not happened yet. And the people of the prince, I'm going to continue reading, and that's the prince there is Antichrist, that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Okay, that's the last seven years. And in the midst of the week, that is in the three and a half years into the tribulation, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined, shall be poured out upon the desolate. So in the middle of the, the week of years, the Antichrist will break his covenant with the children of Israel and show his true rebellion against God. That's Daniel's 70 weeks. And as you read through that, I trust you'll see that the, that the years uh, fit uh, into the prophecy, the decree of Cyrus, Jerusalem re being rebuilt, 
Christ being cut off, the Messiah being cut off in 30 AD, and so all of that fits in, and we're still waiting for that 70th week of Daniel. So as we come back to Revelation chapter 6, and by the way, um, the events in Matthew 24, 4 through 31, seem to coincide with the events of the chapter in Revelation 6. And so if you have a chance uh, in your own time, read Matthew 24, and you'll read about the war, the famine, the death, the martyrdom, the sun darkened, the moon turning to blood, the stars falling, divine judgment being poured out on the earth. It's the same thing that we read here in Revelation chapter 6. So the rapture must have already taken place before the scene that we looked at in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, the scene around the throne. And now the Lord opens these six seals and the tribulation begins. The first seal in verses 1 and 2. The rider on the white horse will find him. He's, he's the one that's opened, the, the seal opens and we're, the, he's revealed. And he is, on the, uh, he is one who conquers. Revelation 6, 1 and 2. And I saw the, when the lamb opened one of the seals. That's the first one. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. The Lamb opened the first seal. Jesus Christ was the only one with authority to open the book, remember? And John heard this noise as of a loud thunder. And one of the four beasts, or angels, that were around the throne of, uh, that we saw in chapters 4 and 5, says now, come and see. That invitation, come and see, is given four times in chapter 6. Come and see. This is the first. Who's the rider on the white horse? Well, because of the reference of Christ returning on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, some have said this rider on the white horse is the same. This is the Lord. In fact, there are good commentaries. Newell, whom I quote, uh, often has this view as well. But there are four horses here, and they're all associated with the first four seals, and each of those openings of the seals bring trouble. The archer riding on a horseback was one of the, one of the most fearsome fighters in the ancient world. The rider went forth conquering and to conquer. Some think since the last three riders are, are uh, horses are forces and not people, that the first rider is also some kind of a force. I believe this rider is probably the Antichrist. He wants to appear like Christ. He wants to ride on that white horse. He wants to be a conqueror. But he is the deceiver. He can't be Christ because the Lamb was the one who opened the first seal. Another reason, the crown that this rider wears is called a, Steph a Stephanos. A crown that's awarded as a prize. When you get to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12, you'll find one, it's, it's Christ there on the white horse returning, and on his head were many crowns. And there the crowns are diadems, they're royal crowns. They're not the same word here. Also this rider has a bow. Christ will come with a sword. Christ will return as a mighty conqueror at the end of the tribulation, not at the beginning. Kenneth Wiest says this, the 70th week of Daniel begins with the rider on the white horse, the Antichrist, of chapter 6, verse 2, 
and closes with the rider on the white horse of chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus Christ. Where does this rider on the white horse get his power in chapter 6? Dr. Custer writes, God allows Satan to give the victor's crown to him along with his power, his throne, and great authority. Satan himself, the dragon, is the one who will give power in Revelation 13 too. The dragon gave him, the Antichrist, his power and his seat and great authority. So the Antichrist will come on a white horse. He will deceive many into thinking that he's the Messiah. He comes appearing to bring peace, but instead he brings war. The second seal is opened in verses 3 and 4, and here we have the rider on a red horse. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. There's the second time it's said. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And they that should kill one another, and that they should kill one another. He's taken the peace away from the earth. People start killing one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Again, the seal is opened by Christ. The invitation is given, come and see. This time by the second beast. That's who invites John to come and see. The second horseman was given power. The text simply states he was given. Um, he takes peace from the earth. He causes men to kill one another. He was given a great sword. This sword is a, a makaria. It was a, not the broad sword, but a sword that a Roman soldier would carry, something that was about 18 to 24 inches long. When we get to Revelation chapter 19 and see Christ, that sword comes out of his mouth. And that sword is a different word. It's, a, it's the broad sword, verse, 19, uh, verse 15 of chapter 19. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Again, a commentator writes, The Lord Jesus Christ warned that the whole period between his return would be characterized by wars and rumors of wars. People say, well, we have those now. What's the difference? But he also warned of a great tribulation period of unique severity that would come from the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15 through 21. It will be a period of bloodshed on a scale that the world has never seen. You take all the wars of the world and they won't measure up to what is going to take place in this war of the tribulation. The third seal, verses 5 and 6. Here we find the rider on a black horse revealed. He represents famine. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The third seal is broken. And on the the, the, the third angelic creature now invites John to come and see. And here the rider on this black horse has a scale in his hand. It says a pair of balances. It describes the two sides of a scale that are connected with a balancing rod. It's obvious. He's weighing out supplies to see if there's enough food to sustain life, to see what will be charged for this food. A penny. It's a denarius, a day's wages. 
A penny will either buy a measure of wheat, a measure would be enough for three meals, be one day's meals for a day's wages, or three measures of barley. Barley is more coarse than wheat, but it, the three measures still cost a day's wages. There will be no more money for anything left over, just simply sustaining life by eating from this grain. No money for, for housing, no money for clothes, nothing else left. And uh, the inflation is a sign of a terrible famine. A warning is given, don't hurt any of the oil or any of the wine. <laughs> we can't afford that. Don't waste it. The third seal is the black horse of famine. The fourth seal in verses 7 and 8. Here are the rider on a pale horse. That represents death. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. And power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. The fourth seal open. The fourth beast cries, come and see. And that's the last time that we'll see that invitation in this chapter. This time the writer's on a pale horse. The word pale in Greek is chloros. It's the color of, of a pale green. The rider is death. The text says that hell follows him. The word hell there is Hades. It's the place of departed souls of men. John will write in chapter 20, when death and hell, they're seen twice in, in that context, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, that eternal fire. And whoever wasn't written in the, found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so death and hell follow this pale rider. Power was given to the rider, to kill one-fourth of mankind. Death came to a fourth part of the earth. That means 25% of the world's population will die. These judgments on people, on mankind, this is, this is just at the beginning of the tribulation period. One out of four people will die. Besides the destruction that God brought into the world through the universal flood in Noah's time, there is... There's been an unprecedented death toll here. It's a higher number than the world has ever witnessed caused by any war or any famine or any disease. We come now to the fifth seal in verses 9 through 11. And here we'll find martyred souls under the altar are revealed. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The lamb still is the only one with authority to open these seals, and he continues with this fifth seal. John sees the souls of men who've been killed. They were martyred because of two things, the word of God and the testimony that they held. 
those, these are those who were killed so far at the early part of the tribulation period. The seven years are not over. And the Lord tells them, wait until the others are martyred as well. Notice the souls are said to be under the altar. Now there is a, there is a tabernacle that is in heaven that God showed to Moses when he was looking, or was showing him the pattern to construct the earthly tabernacle. That, that truth is found in Hebrews chapter 8, the second half of verse 1. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. It's the heavenly tabernacle. God is the one who set it up. Man had nothing to do with it. We get down to verses 4 and 5 of Hebrews 8. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. These things, of earthly priesthood, are shadows of the reality of heaven. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So there is a heavenly tabernacle. There is a, a, there is a burnt offering there, an altar. Leviticus 4.7 tells that the, that the priest of the earthly tabernacles put some of the blood of the sacrifice on the horns of the altar, and then he would pour out the rest of the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering. That was at the door of the tabernacle. That's exactly where these martyrs are found. Christ is our sacrifice. The blood of martyrs does not atone for sins. But they're under the altar in the heavenly tabernacle, representing they were willing to pour out their blood as a sacrifice for the word of God and for their testimony. The word testimony is martyria. We got our word martyr from it. It's the same word that Christ uses in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. As I studied the text this week, I was overwhelmed I was convicted by our reluctance in American Christianity to even think about dying for Christ for the sake of his word and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Listen to the loud voices of these martyred souls. What are they saying? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? They wanted justice. Their lives were taken from them and they were innocent. They were slain because of their faith. Jesus told the parable in Luke 18 of a widow and an unjust judge. Even that unjust judge would hear the cry and rule in this widow's favor who was crying because she would not stop. And Jesus made the application by saying in Luke 18, 7, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. God hears their voices. And in his time, he will bring justice. <clears throat> they are given robes of white. I love that. 
When I was reading through that, I thought, this, this is wonderful. They are given those heavenly robes of purity, even as they are anticipating their resurrection, their resurrected body. They have these robes. They're spirits. Can't put them on, but they have them. When a young person joins a sports team and gets his uniform, he comes home and he puts that on and he wears it to bed, doesn't he? He's, he's part of the team. These souls cry for God's justice. But they know they're on the winning team. They will reign with the saints during the millennium. As for now, they're told to rest until the others who die as martyrs of the tribulation join their number. We come now to the last seal, verses 12 through 17. And here there are great shaking, signs, and wonders. And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as the fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great, the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The sixth seal is open. And dramatic events start taking place in the physical universe. These are what the Old Testament prophets wrote about in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel. The great earthquake, Ezekiel 38, 19 and 20. The sun turning black as sackcloth. The black hair of Sicilian goats was used to, to make rough cloth or even tents. The moon as blood, it means it's red in color. The stars fall like figs late in the season when a strong wind blows them out of the tree. And, and the way that these are described as falling to the earth as stars, they're probably not stars as our solar sun, but meteors. In November 13, 1833, there was a meteor shower of hundreds of meteors. And they could be seen, and people fell down on their knees and begged God for mercy. They thought this was the event. Heavens will be rolled back as a scroll. As a result of the earthquake, every mountain and island was moved. I've mentioned before, when we lived in California, uh, we went through the Whittier earthquake. It was um, 5.9 on the Rector scales in 1987. It hit at 7.42 in the morning. I was getting ready for the day. I thought the kids were playing and roughhousing. <laughs> I could feel the walls shaking. It's disconcerting. You go outside, you can hear the rumble of the ground. Your feet are like you're standing on, uh, on water, a liquid, because the earth is moving. There's no, nothing firm to stand on. And when God shakes the earth in judgment, men will realize that all along they had a false sense of security. They'll be terrified. This is the tribulation. Men are afraid. They want to die. 
Everyone is afflicted, the noble, strong, kings and great men, chief captains, mighty men, everybody bond or free. What do they try to do? They try to hide in dens and the rocks of the mountains. What do they cry out for those rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb? They're more afraid of him than they are of the earthquake. They acknowledge that God is the one who is doing this. That God is acting. Oh, that our world today would see that he is the God of wrath on man's sin. He's a God of love in providing his own son as redemption for that sin. But in that day when they have rejected his love, they will face his wrath. They acknowledge that God is the one doing this. They acknowledge that this is the wrath of the Lamb. God is angry and they know that and they, they know it's deserved. They know that the great day of his wrath has come. They know that no one is able to stand against God, that this punishment, this judgment is inescapable. And those who say that God is a God of love, would never, he would never be angry with sinners, will realize on that day that Jonathan Edwards was right in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He is just. He is holy. And there will be a time when the cup of his wrath has finally reached its fullness. And it will be poured out on those who have rejected the mercies, the love, the escape through Christ, that gift of salvation through the death of his son. There are warnings all through the Bible that men have ignored. Let me just read one in closing. Romans 2, 3, and 6, 3 through 6. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them that do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against or until the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. As I go through a chapter like this, it's an awesome thing to read about what will happen. These are not just speculations. This is God's word. And as we consider the wrath of God that will be finally poured out on the sins of man, there are two things that, that come to mind that we must do. Number one, there are souls around us who need Christ. Unless we think, well, we're that selfish, that we found a refuge and we're not willing to share the answer of salvation to those who are still without Christ, we have a task. You say, well, they don't want to hear it. I've talked to them before. If they could see what's ahead, if we could see and know, if we believe this book that God is going to judge the world, our hearts will be burdened for the, for the lost. Let's ask God for opportunities to tell others this week, to warn them of what's coming. Secondly, as we think about our trust in Christ, and realize that we'll never face the wrath of God. Because Jesus Christ took our punishment. The punishment that we deserved. 
We won't go through this tribulation. And I rejoice that Christ is our solid rock. On him our faith is secure. Sing now as we depart, Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to realize that as we stand on the rock of ages and realize all other ground is sinking sand that we will see that there are those who have not trusted you as Savior and one day they'll be calling on other rocks to fall upon them to put them out of their misery. I pray that today you would burden us for that lost world. Give us a compassion for them. Help us to go with boldness. Help us to go with the trust that the, the word of God is powerful, it's sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that you would help us to use it wisely as we go out and tell others of your marvelous grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.